Well, we continue in our series, Designed for Thriving Families. And uh, this morning we're talking about smart marriages, but I want you to say ahead of time uh, that it's not just about marriage. We're talking about all relationships today. And these principles will apply over and over again in our relationships. And we want to um, uh, take a little deeper look today if we can. I mean, I've been married uh, for 40 years. Uh, Patricia and I have now been married, some of you know, I've been married twice for 10 years. And um, it's been uh, really a, a great time, a great experience along the way. And um, um, in fact, I'm going to invite Patricia to come right now and tell you how wonderful I've been over these past. <laughs> no, that's next week. Okay. But um, uh, she's been wonderful. You know, it's the strange and wonderful relationship. I'm strange. She's wonderful. But uh, it's, it's been great. And, you know, the, the truth is, is I'm a work in prog process. And, and God is... I'm just glad God has a sense of humor and he keeps working with my life and you maybe can identify with that. You know, uh, for me, uh, for, as a senior pastor for over 30 years, I did at least one family series a year. And one of the reasons I did it is I grew up without any kind of model for how a man should treat a woman or what her father was like. And so part of mine was just a search to get some answers. And then I discovered as I did, these people came out of the woodwork. They brought friends. We got all kinds of people who didn't know Jesus show up. And we saw hundreds of them come and, and meet Christ. Because you can guarantee that we talk about family relationships. We're talking about one of the top two issues in your life at all times. You say, what's the other one? Well, it's God. One way or another, it's God and it's, it's other relationships are there at the top. When we go internationally, those are right at the top of everything we teach. Um, but... God has used these in our own lives. And um, I also grew up in an era in the Christian church where there was a lot of emphasis on right doctrine. I remember beginning to think one day, well, you know, wait a minute. Right doctrine, what does that include? If it does not impact relationships, then it's incomplete doctrine. And we can talk all around the world about theological things and not touch on relationships. Something is missing. There's a problem. And God wants to address these, er these areas. And so as we talk about smart marriages, let me say whether you're married or whether you're single, thinking about married or have been married, listen to what God has to say in regard to what thrives and what does not. And uh, if, if I were to ask you some questions this morning, and uh, whether you are um, um, married or not, a parent or childless, um, how does God's design impact yours? We started this, we're in the third week of God's design. And uh, I were to say, what kind of relationships do you have? Are they great relationships? Are they even possible? Or is that fantasy? And how are yours? Maybe yours are okay. Maybe they're awesome right now. Uh, maybe they're heading south or plateaued. Maybe some dreams have been fulfilled. Or maybe some of you have given up your dreams, saying, well, I don't think it's going to get any better. And so we've settled in for that sort of uh, gut it out till the end kind of a, a, kind of a relationship. Or we can say, what are your plans to improve your relationships of any kind? Or do we simply roll with the punches? Uh, do we live in fantasy, hoping things will improve on their own? You know, does, it, does it make any difference at all? Or do some people just catch the right person so they marry the right one? That's why they have a good relationship. There's that kind of myth that floats around as well. But basically what this message is going to say is that all relationships can improve, married or not. And, uh, and also, should it work just in our families, homes, and marriages, hopefully it will, or beyond that? Is there a broader picture that God has in mind when we talk about the importance of relationships? By the way, did you know that the number one predictor of career success is something that no matter what profession you're in, it's something we call EQ. Have you heard of that? Most of you have. EQ stands for what? Emotional quotient. That doesn't mean can you get emotional, <laughs> Right? It stands simply for our ability to relate to other people. It's the number one predictor of success in any profession. Yeah, you've got to have skills. We need all these other things. But in the long run, that's what determines how well you do is our ability to get along with people. And not just with, I mean, but with any kinds of people. I mean, you know, that there may be all kinds. There may be dill pickles and there might be sweet pickles in your life and in your future. It's the ability to work within all kinds of relationships. And God has given us his instruction manual, the scriptures, for great relationships. The Bible can be summed up in Jesus' command and really two commands. In fact, Paul says this later on. What is it? Love God with all your heart 
and your neighbor as yourself. It says all the scriptures can be summed up in, that, in those two commands, in that phrase. Love God and love people. So what we're talking about is relational. Or we have a relational God. And then we might say, but you know, aren't some people just more relationally challenged than others? And that's true. Some are, you know. Some people have trouble liking anybody, much less loving them. And that comes from a lot of different backgrounds. Some of us have suffered great relational shipwrecks, maybe failed marriages or past wounds that come from family. And uh, other people sort of wait for some love to come along and just kind of grab them. Well, that's probably not going to happen either. You'll wait a long time for love to just grab you in terms of human love. Now, here's the truth. If your relationships are good, life is good. If your relationships are not good, life stinks most of the time. And that's just the, the world that we live in. And so we need a little bit of, of a reality check. In America, where we talk about love all the time through the songs and the media, we experience less of it than maybe any country on earth. We've talked about the disaster failure rate, that 70% of marriages are going to crash and burn. They're not going to work. But the question is, why do we do so poorly as a nation in relationships? In terms of what the original design of God is, why do we do so poorly? Where does that come from? Is it because of lack of information? We've never heard it? I don't think so. There are more books right now written about marriage and family. There are counselors. There's all kinds of things more than any time in the history of the world. It's not lack of information. But it is lack of application. It's lack of application. It comes right down to we've ad-libbed. God says, here's the way. Here's my design. We say, no, I want to do it my way. So we ad-lib and try it our own way. And the results are disaster, pain, and present frustrations because we do it our way. Now, that's just marriage. That's just a marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about parenting, the delights of parenting. So you might want to be here for that one. And uh, it will be a good time together. Well, today, there are many, many new studies that are going about marriage, home, and family. This isn't new either. But so many of these are by non-Christians, and they're making some amazing discoveries. They don't even know it, but they're beginning to share principles that God said a long time ago. <laughs> In terms of discovering what really works, what the scriptures say. Not just what a bunch of people got together and thought it would be a good idea. And some of these are as to what are the secrets of satisfaction in a relationship. What do you think they are? You might say, good communication. Is that it? Well, that helps, but that's not it. How about the ability to do conflict management, resolve conflicts? That helps, but that's not it. How about mutual interests? Yeah, that helps, but that's not it. Or marrying a great personality? That's good, but that's not it either. What is the number one key to great relationships in a great marriage? Some of you already know. You looked at the bulletin. It said smart marriages do what? Fuel friendship. The number one key in great relationships is friendship. Over and over again, anywhere in the world you find a great marriage, you will find people who are friends or becoming best friends. I can say happily, Patricia Ann's my best friend. She gave me permission to say that too. <laughs> but we have a lot of fun together, and she is my friend. A growing deep friendship. Three quarters of women surveyed said, listen to this, the key to romance, passion, and satisfaction in marriage is the quality of their friendship with their husband. Remarkably, three-quarters of men said exactly the same thing. The key to their relationship is a friendship. And that shows that maybe men and women are from the same planet after all, right? Possibility for that one. And what this means, the friendship means a mutual respect and enjoyment of each other's company. And I can tell you, as a, being a pastor for umpteen decades and, and my own observation, um, I always said to people, show me, I have never seen a great marriage that wasn't, they weren't very good friends. It's just the way it is. So the question is, am I moving in that direction? And what we're hearing is, yeah, I wish I had a good friend like that. Let me just back up a minute and tell you now, you're going to hear it again several times this morning. No, no, no. It's what kind of friend are you to them? That's the focus. That's the question. What kind of friend am I to my husband or my wife or anyone else? What kind of friend am I? And also, uh, there's a book written by a man named John Gottman. And I put the, the, the reference in your outline. And he shares principles of, how he of what he discovered. And what we're going to discover is that he challenges many of the modern therapies 
about counseling for marriage. He challenges those based on his findings. He's not a Christian, but he has discovered these amazing Christian principles. That's why I thought it would be interesting to bring some of that to us today. And he says this, these couples intend to know each other in deeper ways. They know the other person's dreams and hopes and aspirations and personality quirks. And they demonstrate ongoing care and respect. And they express fondness in little ways day in and day out. And it says, do they spend lots of time together? They'd like to. But many of them have very heavy working schedules. And so they're not able to spend a lot of time together. But what they do find are little ways during the day to make connections, even for a few minutes. Say, hey, thinking about you, praying for you, love you. They find ways to do that. And they assume the best about each other. They give each other the benefit of the doubt. And you know what? That's exactly what the scriptures say. Take a look at this. In fact, read Proverbs 17 with me, would you please? A friend is always loyal, and a brother is born to help in time of need. Then from Ecclesiastes, he's talking about two people. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And then Jesus Jesus said, there's no greater love than anyone lay down one's life for one's friends. And that tells us something about friendship. This isn't just buddy-buddy. This is a willingness to sacrifice for the good of another person. And that's the model of Christ. And frankly, it's all about him when we talk about marriages and great relationships. So here's the summary of a great relationship in marriage. Become a great friend. And um, friends agree on everything, don't we, honey? Absolutely everything. No, she said no. You don't agree on everything, but what we do... But we don't dwell on the differences. We dwell on what we appreciate about the other person. You see, God did not call us to be referees or judges, but to be fans of each other. By the way, that that operates in a church pretty well, too. So these people have learned how to navigate differences, and they have good repair rate. When things start breaking down, they're eager to repair them instead of let them go. And they've learned how to honor and respect And they discovered that is a key, listen carefully, especially men, a key to romance. Honor and respect is a key to it. You see, Gottman goes on to say that he's got a syndicated TV program. And he learned in what he calls his love lab. People would come in and he, in counseling, he can predict within the first, he said, 15 minutes is really the first five. With 90% accuracy, who's going to divorce and who's not when they come and begin to share their problems. And... um, I could tell you those, or we could go right on past them, and I can do something else. You want me to share you those? I was going to anyhow, but I just thought I'd see if you're interested. So here's what he dis- did. he discover that happy couples are smarter, richer, and more psychologically astute? No, but he did discover this. They did learn not to let their negative thoughts overwhelm the positive. By the way, did you know that married people live four years longer than the non-married person? And why is it that most marriage therapies fail uh, in, in these areas of helping, difficulty? Because many of them will focus on communication. Is that a good thing? Yes, but 50% of people have had communication skills revert right back. Or how about conflict management? Is that helpful? Absolutely. But 50% revert back to the old ways. And we'll see reasons for that in just a little bit. By the way, if you live with someone who's struggling with an addiction of any kind, alcohol, drug, pornography issues, gambling, eating disorders, you need to learn what to do. And there are plenty of helps out there. Get some of the books on boundaries. Listen to Focus on the Family, to Family Life Today. Get help with that so that you don't end up being manipulated by the other person. And that's what happens in those relationships. They will put their guilt upon you. It happens all the time. And so you need to learn how to deal with that. That's a whole other issue sometimes. And so here's some of the warning signs that he says these six predict a divorce with 90% accuracy. The first one is this. He calls it a harsh, harsh startups. Now notice, notice Proverbs 15.1 here. A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. You know, when Solomon wrote, all he was doing was observing. <laughs> Nothing's changed over thousands of years. This is what happens. He says it's not do people argue It's how do they argue? Because you're going to have differences along the way. Is there blame? Is there sarcasm? Are there negative accusations that form the content? 
If these show up in the first three minutes of the argument as people are dealing with things, you can predict 90% they're, having, they're heading for major trouble if that's the normal way of operating. Then he goes on to talk about the four fouls, fouls like foul in a basketball game. I call them the four horsemen in the apocalypse. Okay? The first one is criticism. And by the way, what's the difference between criticism and complaint? You know, if you think it through very well, you'll know what it is. Criticism attacks the person, their character, and it says, you're to blame. Now, that might be true, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. Complaint says, I'm angry. I'm ticked off because we didn't do or you didn't do what we agreed upon. We agreed we we're going to be here and we we're going to sweep the floor. What's the difference between those two? One attacks a person and one addresses an issue. And by the way, that works in any relationships, in any organization, in any church. What are the issues instead of attacking the person? And see, blame makes it worse. Criticism opens the door for even deadlier issues like the second one, and that's what? Contempt. What's contempt? Name-calling, hostile humor, sarcasm, mocking, eye-rolling, sneering. And it's worse because it makes attempts to resolve the problems virtually impossible. Because it's all about the ad hominem or personal attack. And also it turns to what we call global criticism. What's that? You always, you never. Right? When we hear that, we know we've also stepped beyond the bounds of reality. And it's a put-down. Then defensiveness is the next one. And that's what? Defensiveness is somebody because of their pride and their extreme insecurity will not back down, will not admit they're wrong, and apologize. And that does what? It escalates the war. And as men, we are notorious for this because men are nothing but little boys grown up and their pride keeps them from admitting they blew it. Okay? Until God gets a hold of it. And then there's stonewalling. That's where one partner out tunes out the other person to avoid a fight. Just walk away. I'm not going to deal with this anymore. What it turns out to be in reality is avoiding the marriage. You can't walk away from it. Now, there are times maybe to back away because it's too hot. But ultimately, stonewalling doesn't work. And then there's flooding. <laughs> flooding is when, isn't this a lot of fun? Um, no. When negativity of one spouse becomes so overwhelming, it leaves the other shell-shocked. Meltdown's on the way, and it makes interaction impossible because of this, this flooding. And then another one he calls body language. This is surprising. What happens is in, in, in the people, in one of them, there's a heart rate increases, adrenaline and blood pressure go up. And you know what that does? That shuts down all creativity. As that begins to happen, body language sort of takes over, and we're controlled by this thing. And by the way, he doesn't mention it here because he doesn't understand it. But this is also when you know there's a spiritual presence going on that's not good. The Bible warns us about that, doesn't it? Do not let the sun go down on your anger toward anybody for any reason, or what happens? It says you give the devil an opportunity. He doesn't cause these things. We said it before. He doesn't come in and cause the argument. He's just sitting there waiting. And as soon as we start it and we do our little thing, and he just pours kerosene on it. And so we start it. He adds to it. And I can prove it because some of the biggest arguments people ever get in are over little insignificant things. And, and somebody won't say I was wrong or whack off, and it just keeps going and going. And we're all susceptible to that without being, without being careful. And then the next one is what he says, failed repair attempts. And one person says, let's take a break. I need to calm down, but it doesn't happen. The other person, just like a dog on a bone, just keeps chewing and chewing and chewing because they can't lighten up. And then number six is bad memories of the initial relationship. Usually there are some good memories of the early years, but when it gets to the place there's none, can't remember anything, then we know it's also trouble right here in River City. And then couples begin to see their problems as so severe, they realize that trying to talk is useless, and so they begin to move off and solve problems on their own. We start living parallel lives, and the loneliness sets in. Now, all marriages go through a period of loneliness, and here's why. Because no mate on earth, Mr. Wonderful, Mrs. Wonderful, the one you wish you had married if you didn't, nobody here can meet your deepest needs. We've talked about that, right? No human could ever do that. Only God can do that. So there's some natural periods of loneliness that as much as your mate might want to understand and love you, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> as we're going to see in a moment, that's why it's gotta, we have to go to Jesus. Because he's the only one who can do that. But when this loneliness, I'm in this thing all alone, then major trouble comes. 
Now, folks, this is not good. But here's the good news. It's not over. So what do we do? What do we do? Take a look at this passage again from, from Proverbs. It says, The wise look ahead to see what's coming, but fools deceive, them, deceive themselves. The wise say, hey, wait, what's happening right here sure isn't working. So why am I continuing to do it? Remember the old definition of what, when you continue to do something over and over again, but nothing changes, you get the same result. What's that called? Insanity. <laughs> and we're all guilty of it. We all do it from time to time and wonder why life isn't getting better for us. So the key next is what he will point out to be, we need skills for a thriving marriage. Skills for a thriving marriage. Now look at this. Foolishness brings joy to those with no sense. A sensible person stays on the right path. You hear what that implicates, applies? There is a path to take. There's some right ones and there's some wrong ones. Plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. Now, folks, the word for wisdom in the Old Testament is a word that means a skill for living. There is a skill all about relationships. There's a skill to marriage in any other relationship. How are we growing in those areas? Are we gaining God's wisdom to help us along the way? And he makes, he makes seven suggestions here. And the first one is, he says, enhance your love maps. What is that? <laughs> That's really keeping each other updated about one another. Happy couples are intentionally, uh, intently, I should say, familiar with each other's world. They keep updating each other's hopes, dreams, interests, likes, wounds, challenges, worries, so on. Why? Because without that, we can't know each other. And you cannot love someone unless you know them. A lot of young people don't understand this. You know, they get married, they think, I get all excited when I'm with this person. That really doesn't mean much. <laughs> it's how well do we know them so that we can love them. Some of you know that the word in the Old Testament for physical, intimate love in marriage is the Hebrew word simply means to know. There's an intimacy in knowing that person. And so, how well do we know them? This gives you strength to weather marital storms. We said it before, some people know more about their computer, their career, their surfboard, their favorite team, or their car than they do their mate. Because they spend more time with those things or studying them. So what do you do? What's the answer to that? We need to ask questions to enter into our family, our loved ones, or that other person's life. Ask them questions. Reduce the amount of statements we make. Ask questions that will, you can enter into their life. And then he says, secondly, nurture your fondness and admiration. Now, how do we do that? It's the ability to find memories of fondness and admiration. That there's some sense that the other, at one time at least, was worthy of respect. <laughs> okay, back up on that. You might say, I'm having trouble right now, a lot of trouble respecting him or her. Okay, back up on that. It's absolutely crucial that we begin to look. It's a key to rewarding, lasting relationships. is to find something that you can build on in that other person's life and see what happens. And, and then it's also, by the way, uh, it's crucial to look for it, and it's an antidote to contempt when you disagree. It's a focus on searching for the positive in the other person's life and expressing it. And sometimes expressing is a challenge, too. Number three, he says, these couples turned toward each other instead of away. Surprisingly, they found it again a key to genuine romance. When couples acknowledge each other instead of ignore. What it means by this, maybe they're in a store and she says, you know, are we out of bleach? And he answers, I don't know, but let's get some. That doesn't sound like much, but what was he doing? He was acknowledging her statement. Or as he gets ready to go to work, he's a little bit late going to work, and she says, you know, I had this weird dream last night. And he simply says, huh. Well, you know, I really want to hear about it, so just quickly tell me what it is, and tonight when I get back, we'll talk about it. That is an acknowledgement that builds something. It's not just simply ignoring it or shrugging something off. It turns out that this is one of the keys to lasting relationships and romance. Now, many people think the way you reconnect to rebuild the romance is you get a candlelight dinner, some romantic music, take a nice vacation. That's nice, great. If you can do it, Wonderful. But the real secret, he says, is to turn to each other in little ways daily. It's the key to turning up the heat in the good sense in the marriage. Keep the pilot light burning. By the way, it's also cheaper than taking a cruise if you'll do this. 
The number one way to reconnect was this. How was your day? Not how's our relationship doing? That one, stay away from that one. And it says good relationships take 20 to 30 minutes a day to connect, to check in with each other. And out of a whole long day, does that sound like too much? There are some days we, we all have to admit we came up short in that one. Then number four, let your partner influence you. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you capitulate to everything they say or let them manipulate you. What it does mean is that a smart mate is, uh, it means respect our mate willing enough to let them share in the decision-making process. A wise husband doesn't shut his wife down when she disagrees and says, I don't think we should do that. A wise person listens. And we look for common ground instead of just insisting on our own way. And he said, these couples did better when the tough issues really hit. And tough issues are coming, folks, in everybody's life. We don't know what they are. That's not a negative statement. It's a reality. Are we preparing ourselves by how we deal with the smaller issues right now? Then he says, number five, solve your solvable problems. What's that? And the key is how we do it. He says, use good manners. Drop the blame. Describe the problem, don't judge, deal with the problem, and don't store up resentment. And by the way, in all these things, if we're not doing these things, that's all that's happening. You're storing a lot of resentment. And some people are loaded with it. It goes back to childhood and the marriage, and so it comes out to everybody and everything. And then he says, overcome gridlock. What's that? That's stalemate. Now, here's what, what is gridlock? Stalemate is when the problem really is unsolvable. And how do you move out of that? The key is not going back, how do we solve this problem? He says, get away from that. Don't try to solve the problem. He says, learn to talk, at this point, is, is just dialogue, just talk to each other. And he says, learn to talk without attacking or collapsing. <laughs> and gridlock simply means this, we aren't respecting or addressing each other's dreams, hopes, or aspirations, and they are part of who that person is. So if we shut those down, so he says, listen to their dreams, their hopes, and discover them. I mentioned Gary Smalley's book that he had written some time ago. He says that his idea, the number one problem with couples and why they end, is that one partner keeps stepping on the chief fear of the other person. They don't even know what the fears are, so they keep using words or doing things or coming back to it. Have you discovered your mate's chief fears? That's part of what this is about. And then listen to this last one. He says, this is from a man who's not a believer. He says, create shared meaning. And here's what he means by that. He says, marriage is more than raising kids, splitting the chores, and a little bit of romance. He says, we have a spiritual dimension. Did you catch that? <laughs> Non-Christian recognizes that we're more than body, we're more than mind. There's a spiritual dimension. We have to grow an inner life because that inner life explains who we really are and why we're here. And the more we can agree about values, this is what he says, values, convictions in life, the richer, the more meaningful the relationship will be. It strengthens the friendship. It gives strength to face conflict, and it leads to true intimacy. Now, he's very right, but here's the problem. Folks, have you discovered this? You can know all the right things to do, and it doesn't mean you're going to change or that it's going to happen. Have you noticed how that works in life? You can know, in fact, we already know, most of us know exactly what we should do. Why aren't we doing it is the real question. Well, the reason is we need help, and that's why a great relationship needs a third party and a response to ultimate love. We need a third party. It takes how many people to make a great marriage? Three, right? A man, a woman, and Jesus Christ at the center of a relationship. And you've seen the old triangle, you know, and two people who are putting all trying to make the relationship work, just putting their attention toward one another. It doesn't work. When we put God in his place and we both start focusing on moving closer to him, guess what happens? The relationship gets closer at that junction where we meet with Christ. So it takes three people to make a great marriage. And it simply says also we need a different kind of love than human love. Because we've already tried human love. Now notice what John, uh, John 15, it says this. By the way, should be John 15 and that's my mistake instead of John 5. It says, I have loved you, Jesus said, even as the Father has loved me. Live in my love. I command you to love each other in the same way that I have loved you. 
You know what that's saying? Look at the next verse. Jesus says, uh, Paul says, Husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The model for all relationships is Jesus himself. If I were to say, what's the key to all relationships? Be Jesus to the other person. Are you being Jesus at home? Are you being Jesus with people at work? That's what it's all about. You say, but I can't do that without help. Absolutely, that's the whole point. <laughs> we need God, don't we? But that he is our model, the third party, to make a difference. And again, we said we're more than just mental. We're more than, by the way, you may have heard of the, uh, and this includes some of the personality. A woman was asked, is your husband temperamental? She said, well, he's really more temper than mental. <laughs> and we're more than just physical. There's the spiritual nature. And if you think about it, is this. If we ignore the spiritual dimension of any relationship... We accept a substitute definition of the relationship, which our world offers all the time. And so we're going to settle for far less than God had in mind. And it's going to lead to short-circuiting the very relationship that we want so much. Now, here's the point. We often know what we're supposed to do. We've heard it a gazillion times. But we still don't seem to pull it off. Why is that? Why don't we? Because the problem is motivation. We have to, we, we live often, folks, with a power shortage. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You went to talk to your husband or your wife or one of your kids. And I remember walking into my oldest son's room one time, and this, I was going to tell him how much I love him, what a great kid he is. I walked in his room, and after five seconds, I looked, and there was a pile of stuff here and there. Next thing, I'm, cor I'm correcting him. Hey, man, you know, be to pick that stuff up and this and that, you know, and I, I walked out, and I thought, wait a minute, why did I even go in there? I had to go back and say, Matt, forgive me, because I really came and tell you how much I love you. You're a great kid, and I just think you're, you're awesome. I did exactly the opposite of what I went intended to do. And that's what happens to us, apart from the power of God. Nobody here has the power to pull it off consistently for a lifetime to love the way we should, apart from the power of Jesus Christ. Oh, your marriage can, your marriage can survive. Any relationship can survive with some good old you know, elbow grease and a little bit of hard work. But for it to thrive, it's going to take God getting involved to make a difference in any life. The good news is, is that God promises he will do just that. And then finally, marriage is a call. With this we close. Marriage is a call to what? Several things. Marriage is a call to a greater design. The very first week of our series, we talked about God's design. And we said, why did he design the family to begin with? We went back to Genesis 1 and 2. Remember those? The problem is we live in a world that has their own design and then wonder why things went wrong, why the, why the hamburger hits the fan, why there's so many problems. And all of them mostly about who will make me happy, who will fulfill me, are you meeting my needs? That's guaranteed to produce misery because you're heading in the wrong direction. God says the direction whose needs are you meeting. Let God meet your need. That's the only way, because no human can, so that you can begin to love others. That's the direction of life. That's God's design. And we said the five things back there was that God's design is that, number one, for, for a family, is we experience his love. The same kind of love that's in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then we're to reflect his image. God's image is the source of our identity, our value, and our dignity. Then we're to partner, thirdly, in lasting companionship. Why? To manage his creation. We don't just get together to have a good time. We're here for a purpose, God's purposes. And then number four was to raise up a um, God-focused next generation. Parents have a responsibility to pass the faith on to their kids so that they're hot for Jesus. That's what that's about. And then finally, we're here to expand and extend God's blessings to the whole world. You know, I drew a little thing in the first service, and I think it's important for us to understand why God designed marriage, why it's so important. There's two things that every marriage needs if it's going to survive and thrive. You know what they are? You already know what one is. We've talked about it. It's love. And the other one is this kissing cousin. And that is trust. Love and trust must be there in, in a relationship if it's going to go forward. And if it's not, what happens? That relationship will begin to break down. And so we see love, we see trust, and uh, here's a couple. And one of the things that we've talked about, one of the, the major problems in our country is that when people say, well, you know, premarital sex is no big deal. But folks, 
Marriage is a protective fence around two people. And if it can be broken into before marriage, what's to keep it from being broken out of after marriage? He says, oh, no, we're not going to do that. Are you kidding me? The temptation is already there. We've already done it before. And we live in a country replete with the fact this happens over and over. Now, God is saying, let me come along and repair the leaks in the wall. The gaps in the wall, God wants to repair them. But it comes from his definition of love, his definition of marriage. The second one he says is, is, um, is a call to healing and prayer. And, uh, you know, when you think about marriage, what's his design, what's his purpose? It's two people get married so they can better serve God together than they could alone. That one goes right over the head of the American audience. What do you mean? We get married for the purpose of serving God together better than we could have alone. That shapes a relationship. Then secondly, it's a call to healing and prayer. Now why? Because two imperfect people with a history get married. In my last years of being a pastor, the last 10 years especially, one thing that amazed me, I didn't do that much counseling, but when people would come and say, oh, pastor, could you marry me? I said, yeah, we'll do that. 90% were living together or had already slept together. And I just said, you know, do you want God's blessing? You see, folks, do we think we can do it our way and God's going to bless that? In any things we're talking about? It doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we say, God, forgive me. I back up and I start over with your design. That's what that's about. He isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for people who are willing to be taught and do it his way. And God can repair the breaks in the wall. The other part of it is even if we didn't do that, we come in the marriage as damaged goods. <laughs> you see, isn't it amazing? Before we're married, we try to hide all of our flaws so the other person won't see them. And after we're married, we spend our time picking them out. See? Point them out. Somebody said this. He said, any married man should forget his mistakes. There's no use in two people remembering the same thing. <laughs> it's funny, but you know what studies actually show? That women think by reminding a man of his failures and his limitations, she's going to help him change. A woman really believes that. I know none of you ladies would do that. So what does a man do when he hears this? And the Bible has a word for it. It's called nagging. But what does a man do when he hears this? He says, honey, hold it. Stop right there. Could you let me get my paper? I want to write this down. This is so good. Would you tell me more? <laughs> and he writes and he says, you know what? I'm not watching any ball game today or the rest of the week. I'm going to just go. I'm going to meditate on what you just shared. <laughs> and I'm calling all my buddies and saying, guys, wait till you hear this thing. My wife just shared the greatest list about how I'm a dork. Ladies, I just say there's a better way. The key is to deal with our own personal wounds. And folks, that's through prayer. Notice this. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Stop. I believe in counseling. I do counsel. I've been to counseling in both of my marriages. I would go in a heartbeat at any time. I ask friends for counsel advice all the time. But I will share something with you. The greatest counseling on earth can help, but it cannot heal your inner wounds that we all have. Apart from prayer, you are not going to be healed the way God wants you to. You need to pray for it. You need to have your mate pray for it. You need to have other people pray over you. And some of us have been in churches for 20, 30 years, and we wonder, we keep trying harder. Until God begins to work in there in a supernatural way, it's not going to heal. But with prayer... Amazing things begin to happen. Second part of the verse. The earnest prayer of a righteous person, it didn't say perfect, it said righteous. You know what that is? Somebody who's relying on God's righteousness in their own life has great power and produces wonderful results. And prayer builds intimacy like few things. That's why when I was a pastor, I would not let a male staff pray with a female staff if they weren't married. You know why? Because it builds such an intimate bond. Couples don't get this. Married people don't realize you want to get close to your mate, just start praying. Not preaching. But just pray and pray to bless them and watch what happens. There's an intimacy that begins. And I didn't say, just take five minutes a day like we've asked you to pray for the church. God's already doing wonderful things because people are praying five minutes a day for this church. The same in your marriage. You pick up a phone, pray with them. Say, hey, honey, I'll be home late. Let's just pray for a couple minutes. Bless her. Bless him. And watch what God begins to do even where there's been distance. It's a powerful thing. It can change any relationship. So the question is, why don't we do more? Folks, because we're in a spiritual fog so often. People say, why should I pray? I mean, things aren't that bad. <laughs> For some people, the only time they pray is when a disaster hits. 
Some of you tell me you pray all the time. You say, but you say, I have to pray. You are so blessed. If you know you have to pray on a daily basis, you are blessed. God has put your heart where it needs to be. You're miles ahead of the rest of us if you have to pray. And people who don't think they need to, pray for them. Men are often embarrassed. And they don't know what to say. Or they have their own. I find a man that won't pray. I know several things already. He's never seen a model, which is probably true. But I also know there's internal issues. He's got ethical or moral compromise in his life. Guaranteed. I've never met an exception. Yeah, he might be a little more introverted, but there's something there that's keeping him. It's a call to God to say, get it out, give it to God. Let him work on it. Watch what he does when you give him that opportunity. We had a young couple worked with some years ago, and they were talking about how tough life was. His job wasn't going right. They were having some strains in their marriage because of their five-year-old little terrorist. And they, you know, and they had a couple other little ankle biters at the same time. And, and so they took this prayer thing seriously. They went home. They were in our, one of our small groups. And every night that week, they prayed for 30 and 40 minutes as a couple. They got down on their knees. They went in the bedroom. They prayed over, you know, little Osama's life right there. And, 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 the, and they prayed over him. At the end of the week, they came back the next week. They, they weren't just excited. They were stunned. They, they, said, they said to us, first of all, he had a major change in his work. But their little guy began changing. His agitation in one week, there was something different in his life. Folks, I could go on and on. You know, I'm going to have this thing about prayer. And that's why we're going to pray when this meeting's over. We have our uh, together time as well. Because God does powerful things when we pray. So the question is simply this. What are you praying about? Are you praying together? What's keeping you from that? Simply ask. You know, don't go and preach. To say, Can we pray together? Even it's five minutes. And don't preach at your mate and say, God changed his or hers, this and that. Just say, God, bless them. Give them a heart for Jesus. And thank you and go on your way. And start doing that and watch what he does. And then number three, marriage is a call to studying and entering into another person's life. Human nature is what? We want somebody to understand and appreciate us. We've already gone over that. Who does? That song we sang earlier, he knows my name, and it says what? He wants me. Somebody wants you. Even if your mate doesn't, go to him. Go, go to the one who will fill your cup. And then begin to ask, how do I enter into their life? You see, we want somebody to make, them, make us feel good. That's God's job. And if we get married looking for that, we end up with what we call the two ticks on a dog relationship. We drain the blood out of the marriage instead of building into one another's life. And so God says, love only grows as our capacity to receive his love flows into our life so we can give it to another. And this is God's pattern. And the way that happens is we start studying them and their needs if we're not sure what they are. Notice this from 1 Peter. In the same way you husbands must give honor to your wives, treat them with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker, that doesn't mean mentally, by the way, than you are, but she's your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Who's going to get a bigger reward when you get to heaven, male or female? Yes. He says equal. Treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Brothers, did you catch that? A lot of us are blocking God's best in our life because we're not honoring, we're not understanding our, our mates. And then he says, look at the next verse, just in case, ladies. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself. You don't have to work at loving yourself. What that means is we all spend too much time on us. That's what he's meaning there. And the wife must respect her husband. Here's something important. A wife cannot respect her husband until she begins to enter into his dreams his pressures, his wounds that he's had to overcome to get there. And a lot of men are fighting stuff from their past and they bring it home. They don't even know they're doing it. And that's one of the ways that we build that. So how do we do it again? We ask questions. I want to encourage everybody to go home. Here, I would have had you do it, but maybe we will in the weeks ahead. Write down three questions for your husband or your wife. And not what time is dinner is one of them, okay? And not with yes and no answers, but something where you're asking them, you know, tell me a little bit, what was it like growing up a kid? Say, I've already heard some of those. Let them talk again. You know, what was it like with your dad? Well, you know, what, what, are, what would you love to see happen in the next five to ten years? They've got dreams. They've never, never told you, but ask them. Ask them those things and say, you know, you know, how can I help you? 
And then they pick themselves up off the floor, you know, then go ahead and do that. How well do you enter in? The key is pray and plan to grow with them. Then number four, marriage is a call to serving and blessing. How many here have a friend who says, he'll call you and say, hey, any way I can help you? How many have ever had a friend do that for you? Most people have had some friends say, hey, how can I help you? Well, that's what makes a great marriage along the way. And somebody, had, somebody who has a goal to bless your life, you know, I've had people say to me, I say to them, hey, man, you're a keeper. You know what? You charge my batteries. Thank you so much. I came home Friday, and, uh, and I walked in the door, and I shouted out, I call her Annie, uh, Patricia's name, and, and, and I, the door kind of slammed behind me, and it was silent. I said, oh, yeah, she's gone. And for that split second, there was a, a hollow echo to nothing in that house. And it just went, Phew. And she came home, I said, you know what? This place is empty when you're not here. Because it is. And it just, you know, I, I wanted to bless her by letting her know that's, she's my best friend and her value in my own life. Notice Proverbs 31. Now, women have heard this. They've kind of been beat upon with this. But there's something interesting in Proverbs 31, the and this is not women of Orange County here, the real wives of Orange County, but it says, her husband can trust her and she will greatly enrich his life. What's that about? She's blessing. Her children stand up and bless her and her husband praises her. You know what you've got? This mutual admiration society. She's enriching his life, he's blessing back. That's how God designed it to be. This is what he had in mind. And there's no substitute, folks, for verbally blessing. Now, some people just cannot praise. They cannot do it. They're so wounded in their soul, they can hardly give a compliment. They hardly say thank you. And they think it's the other person. It's their own woundedness. And if you're in that condition, dear brother or sister, ask God to heal you. Go get help. Because there is, every person is worthy of praise because God made them in his image. And I can't say that enough. And then number five. And by the way, words of blessing can turn any relationship around. They may not believe it at first, but you keep doing it and then demonstrate it. Then number five, marriage is a call to growth and change and overcoming. Why? Because we're not there yet. None of us are. Notice this passage. I pray that your love will overflow more and more. And you will keep on growing. How long is that for? Just as long as we're on earth. Keep on growing in knowledge and understanding, meaning of Christ. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. Here's what he's saying. Love must keep on keeping on till it overflows. We must keep growing in knowledge and understanding of Christ. And then overflowing and growing will leap all the way to overcoming. It's love that overcomes all these things we're talking about. Because there's so many challenges, so many hurdles along the way. And people must grow in understanding and practicing love because that's what it requires. And folks, along the way, it means you must grow as a person. There's two kinds of people. There's sponges and they're bricks. Sponges can't get enough of God's wisdom. Just, Lord, I know I need to grow. Bring it on. It may hurt a little bit, but, you know, I need that. Bricks are dull because everything just bounces off of them. They don't change. They just go on stoically the way it is. They'd rather zone out on TV reruns or their latest CSI or some social network than grow. And, folks, if you're not growing, you are drifting, and drifting is always downstream. It's never in the direction you want it to go. Only people on the grow. And God says marriage is all about growth and change. Some people quit growing. That means you bring nothing fresh to the marriage. And that will begin to weaken the relationship. Other mate continues to grow. I've seen it too many times. One grows and one stays put. And the other one goes right on. Pretty soon there's such a distance. And the answer isn't two of them quit growing. The answer is whoever's growing, you keep on and let God work on them. But never stop growing as a person. So the question is simply this. How are you planning to grow and to change this year to become what God wants you to be, what he designed you to be? The other part of this is God has so much more than any of us ever imagined if we'll follow our Savior. And God says, yes, I love you just the way you are, 
but I love you too much to leave you that way. And that's why God will bring difficulty in our life as an act of mercy and grace so we will cry out to him. Instead of saying, this is a bad situation, I just want to get through it. He's saying, no, 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 look for me in the middle of this so you can become who I designed you to be. Let's pray together. Can you ask yourself today, what kind of a friend am I to my husband or my wife? First, am I expecting them to do for me what only God can do? Also, by now, do you realize friendship requires vulnerability, as John mentioned this morning, being real and taking a risk of faith that risks it all on Jesus Christ? Can you say, Savior, thank you for the model you are for love? Make me a better friend at home. I realize the areas of my life that need to change and grow. Help me humble myself and grow in areas so I can love more like Jesus. And forgive me for neglecting the times. Can you say, God, I need your help. I've wanted to do the right thing so many times and I don't have the power to pull the trigger. Can you say, Jesus, it all begins with you. Fill my love my heart with your love. Can you say, today I turn myself over to you. I've done it my way long enough. I want to receive your mercy, your forgiveness. I've blown the blueprint. I've done it my way. And I see the damage. But I ask you to come and fill the breaches in the gap. Heal the holes in the wall of my love and my heart. Make me like Jesus. Father, I pray that you'll answer the prayer of your people. Where there's been hurt, heal. Where there's apathy or indifference, bring healing and anticipation of your great work. Make us like Jesus. Boop, boop.